Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the free version of the Michael Savage podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you. But there are many of you who would love to be able to listen to my show without any ads. I love ads, but many of you want to listen to the podcast free of ads. So we created something for you, a solution. We call it the Savage Premium. For less than the price of one flat, tasteless beer at your local bar, you can receive access to all of my podcasts going back years ad-free for just $3.99. That's at $3.99 a month. You'll get not only my ad-free podcast, but you will also occasionally receive access to material that is exclusive for members only, and I'm going to give you the list in a minute of what you've, what you've missed. You're going to get an occasional monologue from me, maybe a reading from one of my novels, sneak peeks of interviews before anyone else hears them, archive pieces dating back to 1994. Many things that come up, you're going to get exclusive access to Michael Savage material. Details can be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com, and if you want to join All you got to do is go to glow.fm and search Savage Premium. That's glow.fm and search Savage Premium. Now, you will always have access to my free weekly podcast. I want to be clear about that. That's my promise to you. But if you want less ads and more Savage, join the Savage Premium Club today and never miss a spoken word of mine. It's glow.fm slash Savage Premium. You can find it on michaelsavage.com. And here's some of the stuff that you have missed so far. Michael Savage reading from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. My words, my voice. Savage reads from one of his lost journals, Fiji, 1968. Savage's first drive-time show, Hour One. My interview with the Jewish gangster, very popular. I uh, read from my first written published article, Who Was at the Helm? 
from 1965. It's heard nowhere but on my premium site. I read passages from my novel, Abuse of Power. Uh, we replayed Fat Al's Tuna. My Savage Show from 324.94, the earliest show in the archive, 324.94. My interview with Donald Trump from 110.2011. 110.2011, while Mark Levin was mocking him and Sean Hannity was mocking him uh, and the others were mocking him, I was interviewing Trump. Much more. And remember, subscribers also get ad-free podcasts every week. The cost is less than a beer at a bar, and you get a better buzz with, with the Savage Premium. So go to, go to glow.fm slash Savage Premium for full access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive sound you'll not hear anywhere else. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Michael Savage podcast is Ukraine, Russia's Vietnam. We're very honored today to be speaking live from Jerusalem with Amos Asael, a real journalist, a best-selling Israeli author. He was the former executive editor of the Jerusalem Post. Listen to that real, real journalist. Uh, he also, believe it or not, was a foreign correspondent for the San Francisco Chronicle and foreign editor of the Hebrew language financial daily daily telegraph his best-selling hebrew book the jewish march of folly from 2019 is a revisionist interpretation of the jewish people's political history from antiquity to the dawn of zionism but today we're going to talk about is ukraine russia's vietnam but i hope to get into some of the other uh, topics that he raises in his other books particularly when he says the jewish march of folly in that book that book blames leaders, not God, for disasters in Jewish history. That's very interesting. It wasn't God's will that things befell a Jewish people. It was bad leadership. And that, that has a lot to do with what we're going through today in the world, not just in America. So we're going to speak with Mr. Amos Asael from Jerusalem momentarily. There's so much more to be said. And we hope to say it all right here on the Michael Savage podcast. Don't you dare go away. Hello. What an honor to have you on this podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. You have some background. I mean, I've I've done the preview recording of your background. I have one question, which is how let me pronounce your name in my fragmented American way. Amos Asael. Amos Asael. Ah, ah, Amos. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it's a real honor to have you. And today's topic is your article is Ukraine, Russia's Vietnam. And we're going to touch on that in a minute because it's a great topic. I read uh, reviews of your book, The Jewish March of Folly, which I hope you're going to have time for a few minutes on that, in yes. which you blame leaders, not God, for disasters in U Jewish history. Right. I love that concept because. It's easy to blame a supernatural force for the things that our politicians do to us. How true. So, Mr. Amots Asael, is Ukraine Russia's Vietnam? I believe it is steadily unfolding as Russia's Vietnam. Absolutely. Uh, both in terms of how the Russian leadership is reading its enemy and in terms of how it is reading its own population. Mm. Um, of course, every, any historical analogy is flawed, and this one is no exception. And the wars have entirely different 
contexts and backgrounds and also dynamics, and I'm not comparing all those. But in these two respects, I do make a comparison. First of all, the Russians completely underestimated and still do not understand the depth and intensity of Ukraine's motivation to fight. That's one thing, and this is very similar, very reminiscent of the American misreading of the Vietnamese back in their time. Why did Putin in why did Putin have such a vendetta for Ukraine? Was he provoked by them saying they're going to join NATO and put nuclear weapons on their border, or is it reversed? No, I do believe that this trigger uh, is indeed a major factor in his conduct. Mm. I take him at face value in this regard. Mm-hmm. And more deeply speaking, he says, and there's no reason not to believe him, that he never accepted the Soviet Union's dissolution. This is where the deeper problem lies. And even more deeply, one can say that he is a product of the KGB. This is where he was educated. This is where he was weird. And this is where his worldview was shaped. And uh, part of that uh, meant, first of all, that the Soviet Union is, is not just a given, but an ideal. And another part of that said that the people's will is a mirage. It, it's a Western invention that mm. does not exist. Oh, boy. This is what he thinks about the people. That is also why he thinks he can repeatedly and systematically lie to the people and to the world about what is happening in Ukraine. For instance, when he says that Ukraine is led by Nazis and that Ukraine is conducting genocides. These are, of course, blatant lies and, and hallucinations. And it doesn't even cross his mind that to make such statements, you, you got to produce some evidence. Here's the question on that absurdity, if it is absurd to you. We have read about the Azov Battalion and they wear insignias that are very reminiscent of the Waffen SS from World War II. Is there an overlap between the Waffen SS divisions or division that existed in Ukraine during Hitler's reign of terror and the current Azov Battalion? Who are they? Tell the listeners, perhaps. I, I should tell them who they are. I, I, I think you should, because I'm not sure how to describe them. <laughs> you would know more than I. You're the historian. I just know newspaper reports of these, let us say, conservative right wing, uh, vehemently nationalistic Ukrainian fighters who are excellent fighters, apparently. Look, um, um, if the idea is to try to make a comparison between them and uh, the German army's um, crack units back in their time, to begin with, the analogy is in the narrow aspect of Nazi Germany's military uh, management, which was, everyone will agree, regardless of ideologies, that there was a lot to learn from the Germans in terms of how to conduct a military. Sadly, they were efficient in that. Mm. So when Putin tries to make these kinds of comparisons, he's trying to change the subject because Uh. the real subject is not what exists or doesn't exist in this or that corner of Ukraine. The question is who is leading Ukraine and what drives the Ukrainian populace? And who leads Ukraine is clearly not a Nazi, but the Jewish, the openly Jewish um, Zelensky. And what is driving the Ukrainians is the spirit of freedom and independence and sovereignty uh, that has driven many of us Westerners wars. Here's the question. Uh, First of all, I want to put my 
position on the table so people don't have any ambiguity about where what I'm saying. Ukraine has every right to fight for its sovereignty. I personally believe the Russians were unnecessarily provoked by this current uh, uh, militancy within NATO. I don't know why they had to do this at this time, but that's all water under the bridge. As far as Zelensky and his being Jewish, uh, what does a Jew mean? He's not a religious Jew. He's not an Orthodox Jew. He's a Jew by birth. His wife is Christian. This is not a bad. None of these things are bad things. But I think he, unfortunately, like many in the West, used their Judaism as a weapon rather than as a real worship. And I don't think that that's necessarily where he's coming from. I don't know that he's fighting as a Jew. I think he's fighting as a politician. I think he's fighting. He's risen. He began as a politician, but the war turned him into a statesman. And um, his Jewishness, I cite it not as proof of, of any uh, kosherness, if you excuse <laughs> the expression, but simply as circumstantial proof that he's not a Nazi. It's absurd to say of this. Open oh, no, Jew, no, absolutely. He's not. He's not at, at all. There that. we go. So we agree on that. But I think that there are fascistic elements, as there are in almost every government within Ukraine, and they very cleverly are using his Jewishness to advance their own goals in some regard. Well, um, uh, whatever. Look, I don't know this current Ukraine from within well enough to make these judgment calls, but I can say with uh, 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 confidence that the Ukrainian struggle, broadly speaking, in, in its bottom line, is not about fascism. The Russian struggle is. The Russian struggle is about what is fascism? Fascism mm -hmm. is about placing your own nationality uh, above any other nationality and, and, and turning it into an absolute value. This is the difference, in my view, between nationalism, which is a positive value, in mm -hmm. my view, unlike many Europeans who, who have come to the other extreme and mm -hmm. totally discarded nationalism as, as a negative value. I dispute mm -hmm. them. And I think that nationalism is a positive value, but that fascism is this positive values perversion. And I think the Russians are now plagued by the Russian leadership, I mean, is the one that is plagued by this, not the Ukrainian leadership. Michael Savage, a host like no other. We're all worried about the escalation. Anyone who's even in a rudimentary way studied World War I, it seems that there are parallels to the beginning of World War I. One great power does this, the next great power reacts like a chain reaction, and the other power jumps in and then reacts. There was almost no reason for World War I. Just as we see this escalation by sending in these weapon systems, which is giving Ukraine the weapons that they need to, de to defeat the Russian military, what is going to happen when Putin realizes the game is up and he lost? Will he? I fully share, I fully share your fear that the dynamics at play can easily spin out of control, much the way they did uh, during World War I. I share that concern and I've written about it. Mm. And uh, having said this, I don't think the difference between our situation in 1914 is the willingness to commit troops. I don't think that uh, NATO uh, the Europeans, certainly not the Americans, are going to, under any leadership and any circumstances, commit troops to this struggle. 
Fortunately, there also is no need. This is this is not a small country, Ukraine. It's very big. It's very populous. This is where Putin so so badly miscalculated. Mm. And so there's no need, fortunately, in any foreign uh, army's um, intervention of full personnel in this conflict. And I don't think this is in the cards. And I certainly don't think it's going to happen. But what if he gets his back? His back is to the wall. It's close to back to the wall right now. His back is close to the wall right now. And then there's a big talk from people who are not stupid that he may revert to using so-called tactical nuclear weapons on troop emplacements. Do you believe that? Well, I think you say that's a possibility. Anyone would say we can't say it isn't. Do you think it's a possibility? Uh, of course, it it, um, it needs to be thought of as a possibility. Um, it's better to prepare for what will not happen than to not prepare for what will happen. And um, having said this, I wish I had a clear recommendation for Western decision makers as for what to do uh, in such a scenario. It, it would be very easy for me to hear uh, say anything while lacking any responsibility yes. uh, uh, for such deeds. I, I, I have no um, clear recommendation that I can I can make for the record. Uh, it would be so, so unprecedented that never has uh, any nuclear weapon uh, been used uh, while other parties had nuclear weapons, uh, let alone rivals. And uh, I don't know what to tell you about that, only that it's it couldn't be more scary. Haven't the Russians been they were defeated before with a ragtag guerrilla army in Afghanistan? Everyone forgets that. So. Certainly, we can't compare in direct ways the Taliban to the Ukrainians, but the Taliban did whip Russia out of uh, Afghanistan. Yes, I'll tell you more than that. Um, the Russians lost many wars in their history. Uh, for instance, the Crimea War in the 19th century, the uh, war with Japan um, in 1905. Um, the uh, World War I was for them a massive defeat, the result of which was the rise of communism. So they lost many wars. Mm. And uh, the common denominator between these wars is that they provoked their own defeats. <laughs> and this is what we're witnessing now. In they other provoke, words, wait, I have to, that's such a great line. They provoked their own defeat. Yes, they provoked the wars that ended in their defeats and massive biblical scale defeats. Wow. These were. And uh, for instance, in the Russo-Japanese War, they, they were, their entire navy was sunk and um, by, by a country that no one previously even considered as part of the international system in terms of, of modernity, and which is very reminiscent of how Ukraine was judged, or at least misjudged by the Russians in this case. So in terms of historical analogies, this is where um, uh, my, my thoughts lead me. And, and I really smell here a massive Russian defeat. We're speaking with Amots Asael, a best-selling Israeli author who has a great background in journalism, true journalism, a former executive editor of the Jerusalem Post. Strangely enough, and I say strangely enough because I live here, you were once a foreign correspondent for the San Francisco Chronicle. Yes, I was 30 what, years ago. In what year? What years? It was 92. 92, 93, I believe. My first uh, uh, assignment, effectively, out of uh, the Columbia School of Journalism. You missed my 
debut in radio, which was in 94, where I lasted for 26 years. I resigned (laughs) two years ago and I'm only doing podcasts and two Newsmax TV shows a week now. But this is a very impressive background. What I what I saw in your articles with moving away a little bit from the Ukraine, Russia story right now, you know, is Ukraine, Russia, Vietnam, which is you. I think it was you that wrote that journalism is a derivation of the of the Hebrew prophets. I do believe that is, uh, is, you uh, wrote that, correct? I, I believe that uh, in my very secular reading of who the prophets were and what they did, uh, I see in them the earliest uh, forerunners of modern journalism in that they were critics of the regime, uh-huh. often, often at a great personal risk. Mm. And uh, in other words, we have vivid stories in the Bible, moving stories about such prophets, for instance, Nathan entering the omnipotent King David's chambers and scolding him for having stolen another man's wife and sent him to his death in a battlefield, um, scolding in his face this this omnipotent emperor who could decapitate him with the, 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 the waving of his finger. Um, these people were courageous and they were, they were critics of government and they served as bridges between the powers that be and the populace. That's why I indeed do see in them forerunners of modern journalism. Well, that is true when the person is an objective journalist who's representing the will of the people or the, the mind of the people rather than just being a lackey of the political structure, which unfortunately has occurred today to too to great an extent. What you were saying brought a smile to my lips in one way, because I, I once flew on Air Force One with President Trump and he didn't really want me there. I was brought there by someone else into Air Force One. And when I walked in, some of the stories are analogous. He didn't even look at me when they brought me into the flying Oval Office. I mean, I had met him before at Mar-a-Lago. He didn't like me because I was the only one in the so-called conservative media who would criticize him from time to time. He looked at me like this and pointed at the seat, didn't even look at me, bring the Hebrew in. It looked like an ancient king. Just pointed. So bring the Hebrew. So he sits me down, didn't even look at me. And I said to him, President Trump, you may not like what I have to say, but I represent an independent streak in the American electorate that likes you. You can't just have the Sean Hannity's lick your boots day and night with what you say. And he said, no, I don't need that. I said, yes, you do need it. That's the way he is. Luckily, we're both from Union Turnpike and Queens. So he understood my vernacular and things went well. And he offered me one of his hot dogs. So it all worked out. <laughs> but he's, he's, it was a very interesting story. Luckily, he didn't have me thrown out of the airplane at 35,000 feet, which probably would have happened if it was King David or if it was Putin. Uh, today. <laughs> well, the thing about King David is that he's portrayed as the king who actually humbly listened to the critics and, and conceded that he had sinned, unlike uh, uh, King Ahab, who, when confronted by Elijah for having stolen another man's vineyard and uh, conducted for him a Stalinist-style show trial, and which ended in the man's uh, execution by stoning. Oh, boy. That is the embodiment embodiment of the king who would not listen to the media. And not that I'm comparing what he did to to what modern presidents uh, and democracies do, but in any event, Speaking of King David, he is portrayed as the one who did humbly listen to the media. Hmm. The Savage Nation. It's Savage on Demand. Со своим народом быть с родиной, жить ее судьбой, побеждать вместе с ней. 
Speaking of your topic of today is Ukraine, Russia's Vietnam. There's almost zero diplomacy. And I know intelligent people who are not uh, supporters of Russia or supporters of Ukraine who are terrified or very intelligent people. And they see this going in the wrong direction. The only major voice that called for a ceasefire, in essence, was uh, Henry Kissinger about three, four months ago. Everyone remembers that. In my view, movement towards negotiations and uh, negotiations on peace need to begin the next two months or so. The outcome of the war should be outlined by them before it could it creates uh, upheavals and tensions that will not be could be even harder to overcome. Immediately, the so-called media attacked him as senile uh, when Biden ex exhibits all of the signs of actual senility, which they can't see at all. Suddenly, the man who called for peace and diplomacy was senile. Why was Kissinger not listened to? First of all, I don't know anything about um, about Biden's medical situation, so uh, I, I make no comment about your own comment. But um, <laughs> I got it. Um, I, I would say uh, about Kissinger's comment. Uh, also, uh, I don't remember who specifically called him senile, but uh, the bottom line is that he is absolutely right in that uh, this is where the international community has to focus uh, right now. Um, despite the enthusiasm with Russia's setbacks, yes. an angry and defeated and humiliated, humiliated Russia will be bad for everyone's business. Um, so I, I fully share that quest. The question is not, in my view, what that quest should be, but uh, what its feasibility and likelihood are. And um, in, in my own um, intuition tells me that not that we can assume this and wait for this to happen, but my own intuition is that if things continue the way they are unfolding, Putin will be removed um, somehow. By, by his own people. Yes, because another setback, another defeat. Everyone understands what is happening. And this is where the other part of my Vietnam analogy comes in. Ah. His failure to understand where, where his own people are, which we are now seeing when he tried to impose uh, a broad conscription, when mm -hmm. thousands fled to the exits mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, I mean, ran for the exits and fled the country. That means the people know the truth about his war, unlike his efforts to portray it as something else. And they know what it means for them personally. And he is maneuvering himself so that the war will, will become the business of the underclasses. They will be the ones fighting it, while anyone better off will find a way um, to avoid the battlefield and conscription. And more or less, and that's what happened in America during the Vietnam War. Is or isn't. But by and large, it was the poorer men who were exactly. Who I'm were, saying that's where the analogy works. Yes. And uh, it didn't end for the Americans the way they thought it would for the American planners and decision makers. I say the same thing now to the Russians. Uh, your people don't want this war. Uh, stop it. Uh, you're, you're shooting yourselves in the head. So he could be deposed from within. Who would since the there there's a uh, within and a within. 
in Russia, as there are in all uh, layers within all uh, uh, nations. Who is it who has the authority or power or the backing to do such a thing? Well, uh, once again, judging from Russian history, first of all, we have no precedent and therefore no reason currently to think that this precedent will be broken. Never previously in Russian history did the generals unseat a government, whether Tsarist or Soviet, and replace it themselves. It happened elsewhere in the East Bloc, in Poland. It didn't happen in Russia or in the Soviet Union, and there is no reason to assume right now mm. that the generals will uh, uh, change this uh, legacy, uh, simply because looking at who these generals are, how they perform and how they behave, there is nobody there with the guts or the vision to conduct such a thing, so don't look there. Mm -hmm. um, then again, looking into uh, Russian history, first of all, there is a wealth of assassinations, not that I'm calling for anyone to do this. I'm simply analyzing what yeah. I'm witnessing. Um, there have been assassinations in Russian history. Um, there were always a possibility, and Putin knows that better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. um, he, that's why he's so heavily guarded. Uh, but um, the history of assassinations is such that um, uh, they might be able to break through any uh, ring of, of defense. So that's another option. The third option is what happened to Khrushchev. Uh, he was removed by his own circle mm -hmm. uh, when, when they got fed up with him. It happened inch by inch, person by person. At a certain mm. point, it became a critical mass. Mm. And they ganged up on him and removed him and replaced him. That might happen to Putin. But if Russia broke up, I mean, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. If Putin were to be removed and suddenly peace with Ukraine were, was announced, Ukraine wouldn't stop. They would certainly take back the four regions Russia just annexed. And then they'd probably go into Russia itself and take some territory, don't you think? That, that would be a huge mistake on their part. Um, uh, Russia can sustain uh, some defeat in, in, um, in a questionable war. It cannot sustain and it will not sustain. Um, um, an attack on, on Russia proper uh. and um, uh, on Russia's internationally recognized borders, which is what you're suggesting here. And um, I think the Ukrainians would be mad to go there. And I hope this is not in their cards. They, they would overplay their cards the way they already did in their own history. Um, they, they once had a state, mind you, and because they overplay their cards, they lost it. That might happen to them again. Mm -hmm. sure. They need to be cautious. They need to be not overly uh, hungry and to never forget their real size, especially when compared with the Russian bear in whose shadow they are predestined to live. Well put. There's an interesting article in, your, in the newspaper, which you may be familiar with, called the Jerusalem Post, since you were formerly the executive editor. That was published just the other day by Seth J. Fransman. Russia's war in Ukraine enters its third phase. Did you happen to see that article the other day? Uh, remind me of that. Uh, well, he's talking about the phases, you know, f launched its first phase by invading Ukraine February 24. Phase two, grinding offensive in the east. Third phase, mobilizing troops in an effort to hold on to territory. And now uh, where he says the next phase could be phase four, 
which would be Putin using tactical nuclear weapons, assuming they have them and they're operational. And uh, that would be an abandonment of all of the world's norms since the Second World War. Nobody knows what might happen if they went there. And again, we can only speculate and we, there's no point in doing that. I would rather stick to uh, things that we know rather than things that we can't predict or, or, or not know. And again, just getting back to your article is Ukraine, Russia's Vietnam. I think you've drawn similarities right at the outset of this discussion. And I think that you've had people remember that the Russians have lost many wars before. I'd like to shift to the population where you're from, Israel. I would assume that because Zelensky is Jewish, the Israelis are on his side. Is that correct? No, actually, it's a lot more complex. Um, people, are, people are not extremely impressed uh, with his Jewishness in the sense that they don't identify with him um, because of his background. Yeah. Uh, they do identify with the Ukrainian cause. But having said this, Israel has a very unique situation um, uh, in this war in that there are sizable Jewish populations on both sides of this war. Mm-hmm. And Israel feels responsible for them. And Israel knows that if, if it makes one wrong step, uh, it can easily ignite anti-Semitism of a sort that Americans don't know. And these populations know all too well. Boy, I'm, and, I'm so glad uh, you mentioned that. And I'd like to get to it. So don't let me interrupt you. I just wanted to say that's a great topic. Yes. So I'm saying that this is a fundamental uh, Israeli concern in this war, and it makes Israel consensually, since already the invasion of uh, of of an annexation of Crimea, mm-hmm. it makes Israelis uh, seek neutrality and a succession of Israeli governments, joined by both right and left, uh, as well, of course, as center. They all agree on this quietly that Israel's interest is to be above this war's fray. Mm. And Israel, indeed, alone among all Western countries, did not join the anti-Russian sanctions. Mm. Um, uh, Israel continues to trade with Russia and to talk with it. And at a certain moment, it was also trying to mediate between Russia and Ukraine. Remember that. And um, uh, this is how most Israelis feel about this war. They think it's senseless. They think that the Ukrainians have a cause, but they also think that diplomatically speaking, Israel's interest is to remain above its fray. This is also why Israel has frustrated Ukraine by refusing to sell it arms. Interesting. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Yeah, I do remember when the the, uh, prime minister of Israel tried to mediate. I was very hopeful at the time. Yes. I think I think that the, the Russians were more receptive to him than the Ukrainians at that time. But you raised the issue of anti-Semitism. I have quietly said to the few people that I speak with, uh, which are very few. I'm sort of reclusive in the world right now. I just do podcasts and stare at a screen and look at news stories all day long and look at the bay and feed my birds. I fear that no matter what happens with this war, Mr. Uh, Asael, I believe a wave of anti-Semitism will emerge both in Russia and Europe in NATO countries after this dust settles. They will blame the Jews all over again. That's going to be the fallout no matter what happens. The devastation in Ukraine 
the depletion of financial resources in the West. Blame the Jews. It fits like a glove, doesn't it? Uh, um, I certainly share your fear. And um, others sharing, evidently sharing this fear with you and me are thousands of uh, Jews now fleeing Russia and landing in Israel mm. uh, every week. I see. Um, in, in, in recent uh, weeks. Um, I uh, also would add here the scenario whereby the war lags into the approaching winter and uh, Russian gas does not arrive in European stoves and uh, Europeans begin uh, shivering and they look for a culprit and a scapegoat and someone to blame. And you're certainly right that uh, at least in some circles, in some places, um, uh, the temptation uh, to blame the Jews uh, will not be overlooked. Zelensky is the face of the war as opposing Putin. So if he's so pronouncedly Jewish, there they have the scapegoat. They'll wind up burning their grandmother's mahogany furniture that they kept in storage. <laughs> and then what are yeah, they going to uh, do when all the mahogany I'll furniture? I'll tell you was- another thing uh, in this regard that, that few people are aware of because it's only interesting in Israel. Putin, we now have uh, a quarter century of retrospect about the man. Uh, he's completely devout of any anti-Semitic uh, thoughts, feelings, pronouncements. Some, just like he, unlike the Russian stereotype, also does not drink. He uh, is not plagued by this disease. And uh, that too is a factor in the equation. Yeah, well, that's, that's a factor in the equation now that Putin really has sort of been purged either personally or through his life as a politician or KGB officer. He doesn't have that anti-Semitism that's inherent in Russia. He didn't have it. He somehow expunged it from himself. But that doesn't mean it's gone from Russia at all. No, not at all. Right. And you have a large Russian Jewish population in Israel, correct? Huge. Russian speaking. Yes. And then you have a Ukrainian population in in Israel, correct? That's what you. Yes. Although I'm unaware that Israelis of both of these backgrounds uh, are even remotely at loggerheads. Um, They they have all become. Look, it's been now more than or for some of them more than 30 years for the West, almost 30 years uh, since they came here. And we were already facing their children's generation Mm. where all these backgrounds are much more theoretical and where everyone is busy becoming very Israeli. And it should be noted that this immigration became Israeli with um, breakneck speed um, that they um, quickly went to the army and and to um, the most difficult units combat units uh uh that, that's where they chose to serve the, the russians the russian immigrants uh the immigrants who came here from the former soviet union Isn't that and and they they emerged from there and and went to good schools and earned good degrees and and created successful companies in many cases and others joined existing companies and they're a social success story uh, in Israel, and they're not. Most of them are not looking back to where they came from. Yeah, it's interesting. My children were not born in New York City, as I was. I left a long time ago. They don't identify with New York City. 
even though I'm <laughs> I'm so clearly still from New York, no matter how long I get far, I get away from it. I, I'm marked by my accent and my my sensibilities, no matter where I live. When I lived in Fiji, I was still from New York. That's the way uh-huh. it is. But um, you wrote a great book, which I haven't read. Obviously, it's in Hebrew, The Jewish March of Folly. I wish it was translated, which I, I alluded to earlier. And you talk about from Rome to our times, how you blame leaders, not God, for disasters in Jewish history. Could you touch on that for a moment, the book, The Jewish March of Folly? Yes. Um, What I explain there is that when one pieces together, as my book does, uh, the way the Jewish people and its Israelite forefathers uh, conducted themselves politically, responsibility for the um, great calamities of Jewish history lie not only with those who attacked the Jews, and the Israelites before them, but also for the, um, their own leadership um, and the mistakes that they made that enabled these attacks, most notably um, the downfall of Roman Judea. Um, the uh, Jews of those days um, were led by a, a completely derelict uh, set of politicians And I show in the book how they were reckless and they led their people into civil war in in ancient ancient times. Yes. Yeah, it's still Uh, going on going on today. One second. First of all, history, then (laughs) then its implications. I'm saying the historic statement that I make there that this is not even disputed. I just piece it together and explain it to a broad readership rather than students of history, um, the Jews fought each other in, in a vicious civil war while the Romans marched on their own, on their own uh, land and, and famous capital, ultimately leveling them. Um, they, the Jews fought uh, and the Israelites before them an, uh, a total of 12 civil wars that I go through in my book. Most of them are completely forgotten and, and were innovations to the readership here. So I first of all list them and analyze them, and then I piece them together. And then I show that there was a historic and noble um, Israelite deterrence from human power that resulted in a quest to minimize government and to uh, limit government. The first such attempt in uh, political history, and which was noble and was not intended to altogether do away with the state and its power, only to to minimize them. And subsequent generations went a step further and became totally anarchic. Mm -hmm. That's what I blame in my book. Then people ask me, and and I touch on this in the book's closing chapters, is this where Israel is headed? That's what I was going to ask. And um, uh, there certainly is today in Israel um, uh, a lot of social tension, especially surrounding uh, what is happening now with Benjamin Netanyahu. And I warn in my book uh, that whatever we do here, and no matter how we choose to resolve our differences surrounding uh, this big uh, clash, uh, what we should avoid is this heritage of our forebears that resulted in their loss of their own sovereignty and their own land, all of which uh, took Zionism to restore. 
Well, it's interesting what you're saying, and it takes an awful lot of background to understand what you just said for the average listener. And I don't know whether you're referring to Netanyahu as one who wants to limit government or Netanyahu who wanted to create a bigger government. Which Netanyahu are we referring to? No, I'm referring to the Netanyahu who is undermining the judiciary. Undermining Um, the judiciary. Yes, in response to his own uh, indictment, rather than uh, uh, do as other politicians did when they faced indictments, which is to accept the judiciary's authority and then and then and 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 fight for um, uh, for his uh, exoneration uh, within its uh, walls. He is attacking the judiciary itself. How he's this saying they're fake? They're illegitimate. He claims that there is a conspiracy against him personally involving the judges, the police, and the media. He said this for the record. He said this publicly. And this is this is creating here in Israel a constitutional crisis. Didn't he faint during um, a Yom Kippur service the other day? Is he still in the hospital? He did not faint. He said he didn't feel well. He was hospitalized for several hours and he's uh, back uh, home. And in fact, was already back on the stump today uh, with a public appearance. He's OK. I'm just curious because we read he fainted or collapsed. And then no, he didn't faint. He just complained that he, he, he was unwell. Probably fasted too long. During Rosh Hashanah. That could be, yes. Look, he's past 70. Uh, That's not necessarily recommended uh, a day without eating at his age. (laughs) I'm glad you said (laughs) it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for the dispensation. I appreciate that very much. Home of Borders, Language, Culture, The Savage Nation. This is a a delicate question, but it begs to be asked by, by me. We're talking about Russia... Ukraine to begin with. That's how we're going to conclude as well. That's your article is Ukraine, Russia's Vietnam. And you very interestingly stated how many wars Russia has lost. People don't understand that Russia has lost not only in Afghanistan, but going back hundreds of years, many such times. And it could happen again. But you look at Israel and you look at so-called the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, depending upon which side of the coin you are the palestinians are not going away the palestinians have no weapons and yet they are militant they want their own state do you want would you be willing to discuss that issue during this interview is that sure sure what is this i wish there was much to say but whatever there is to say i'm happy to discuss i as an american looking in for most of my adult life you look at what three million palestinians Three million, roughly, or I don't. The know. numbers are an issue in itself, but clearly millions. Yeah. How can you suppress millions of people forever? Um, you certainly cannot do that forever, and it's nobody's intention. Uh, certainly, nobody in power uh, that is or ever was in Israel had this as as like a master plan. <clears throat> the universal Israeli hope is that some kind of reconciliation at some point will emerge. And mm. in my personal case, uh, and this I am saying for the record, I, I absolutely do believe that this change of heart will someday arrive, just like it did with Egypt. Nobody wow. believed that Anwar Sadat would land in Israel and strike peace with the Jewish state 
but he did. We were witness to that. Great man. And the same thing happened with uh, the King of Jordan. So, uh, and we're seeing now how um, more Arab governments joined. And today we are at a situation that just about one in two Arabs uh, between Morocco and the Gulf is led by a government that is at peace with Israel, or at least recognizes it. This is major progress, um, Amir, 70 uh, years after Israel's establishment, 70-something years after Israel's establishment. That was not necessarily expected by Israel's founding fathers, and it's proof that people who seem, uh, whose enmity seems implacable um, uh, can change. Um, that is where I derive optimism from. This does not mean that I delude myself mm-hmm. that things can change overnight or that change can be the result of only one party's um, uh, resolve. This is how Israelis like me, who 30 years ago backed openly and publicly the uh, Oslo Accords when, when they uh, emerged, um, humbly concede now that the subsequent violence that we Israelis faced and endured taught me that we were at least premature in that initiative. We, in my view, struck it with the wrong Palestinian leadership. And uh, we were wrong to assume that it's enough that we changed and, and were willing to sacrifice that much for peace. To really make peace uh, emerge, both sides need to be prepared to sacrifice. And more importantly, they need to truly and deeply and genuinely recognize the other's case, the other's narrative, the other's history. They don't do that. They still lie to themselves that we are foreigners, that we do not belong where mm-hmm. we live. That, And in fact, uh, Yasser Arafat told Bill Clinton himself at Camp David in that fateful summer of 2000, that there never were Jewish temples on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Wow. And a statement, a statement in response to which Bill Clinton fumed and told Yasser Arafat how he could say that to him as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, any Christian believes in the existence of Jewish temples over there. Otherwise, where was it that Jesus uh, turned yeah. the tables? And um, uh, that did not impress Yasser Arafat. And this is an emblem of the denial in which Palestinian leadership to this moment still lives. Interesting. Well, that's an interesting uh, story, and it gives me a new uh, view of Mr. Clinton looking backward. (laughs) But um, I always found him to be rather a centrist president. By comparison today, he'd be considered a right winger by what's going on in this country today. Uh, (laughs) I don't know know, if he would like to hear that. Oh, I don't think so. I don't think he would accept (laughs) that. But behind the scenes, I'm pretty sure he knows what's what. um, Yes. What's going on and and, uh, such. You know, I myself, and I have to bring myself into this because this is all very personal for me. Um, I almost made Aliyah to Israel in 1979. There was a professor, Meshulam, at the Hebrew University. Does the name ring a bell? Meshulam? I'm not sure. In what field? Well, I was, and he was in, I think he was in pharmacology. Ah, no, no wonder I'm unaware of them. <laughs> anyway, he invited me and offered me a fellowship. And I went with my two young children and my wife. Yes. To make Aliyah. It's an interesting story from my point of view. And he said to me something that I'll never forget. Meshulam, I think he certainly was a Sabra. And he was interested in uh, my ethno. I was in ethnomedicine was my field. And I was going to study the ethnomedicine of the uh, Bedouins and Arabs in the West Bank. I probably would have been slaughtered. But 
Anyway, so I'm a fo- into folk medicine, pharmacology, drugs derived from plants. And I'd been doing it all over the South Pacific. And he said, yeah. So he said to me, we sat down at the Hebrew University and he said, Michael, listen to me. I can give you a fellowship for two years, but no more than two years. But I recommend you don't take it because I'm looking at you and I'm listening to you. If you're stuck here without a fellowship with two young children, you'll become a revolutionary in Israel. <laughs> I, went, I went home soon thereafter. I mean, I took him very seriously. I didn't want to wind up stranded in Israel, you know, joining some radical party to overthrow the government because I was suddenly without work and without a profession. What was the point of being there? But something else happened in Israel. I, I'm a very spiritual person. One night. I walked around the streets of Tel Aviv. My, I left my family in, in the room and I went out drinking in the bars of Tel Aviv alone. And I was walking on the cobblestone streets. I can remember it to this second. And um, my father had died uh, in 1970, rest of soul. This was 79. And I heard his voice. OK, psychotic, real, who knows? And he said to me, I was an immigrant to your country. Do you want to make your son an immigrant to another country? That was not castigating Israel, but it was saying your son is an American. He is nine years old right now. He is going to it's going to be a second language. He's not a Sabra. His grandfather didn't fight in 1947, 19. You know, he wasn't in the 56 war. He didn't fight in any of these wars. You're always going to be an outsider. That's what I heard all in that. And really, that's when I left the next day. So it's interesting how life speaks to us. That's a powerful story. I'm glad you heard it from where it came from, because whether it was a psychotic episode or it was, you know, God or me speaking to myself or hearing my my own inner thought, who knows how these things work. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Here we are, but I've always had a very strong draw to Zionism as because of Israel as a nation. And I see this little nation surrounded still by a sea of hate. And I personally don't know how this this emerges any more than I do. What could happen tomorrow with with Putin and Ukraine? I um, suggest to anyone trying to get a glimpse of the Middle East's future to broaden the lens and to think not uh, narrowly about Israelis and Palestinians and instead think broadly about Arabs and Arabs, meaning look beyond the Palestinians to the rest of the Arab world and Mm. within the Arab world, look at the relations between government and populace. This is where it lies. Um, All of the uh, tragedies of the past decade that are misnomered as the Arab Spring, because it was Arab, but there was no spring to it. Mm -hmm. Um, All of these uh, attempted revolutions uh, were effectively a popular cries uh, for freedom and and for livelihood and for dignity. And that, that, that millions of Arabs continue to lack and for uh, these protests were effectively against the misappropriation of the riches with which God blessed uh, the Arab lands and which do not reach the Arab masses. Um, The petrodollars are mostly, or at least disproportionately, amassed by a small number of countries with only a small share of the broader Arab populations, and within them, it's mostly the elites 
who who master those fortunes rather mm. than share them with the masses. This is where the tragedy lies, where it is headed, I think, is towards an, an amelioration, an improvement of all this. More and more leaders across the Arab world understand the need in giving their people promise and uh, a sense of of future and social mobility. Uh, will this be achieved overnight? Of course not. But this is a lot better than where they were back when uh, they were incited by, by say, Abdel Nasser yeah. uh, to, to uh, uh, consider anything that is bad in their lives as a Western plot. And as a result of that, to storm Israel, and this will solve their problems. A growing number of Arab people and Arab leaders understand the futility of this kind of attitude. And I think that we need patience, uh, patience for history to do its number, uh, for governments to mature and for hearts to change. And the Middle East will also change. And Israel's place within it will be recognized by its neighbors. I honestly believe in that. It's a nice thought, and I hope you correct. And I must say, I think I would be remiss not to say that the Abraham Accords brought about Mr. Trump have a great deal to do with the current climate of uh, accord that seems to be emanating between Arabs and Jews in the Middle East. And I, I think I need to give Donald Trump credit. What do you think of the Abraham Accords? Don't you think that they were wonderful and that they are responsible for a lot of this uh, Absolutely. Um, I think I think they are uh, a massive breakthrough uh, in, in uh, for everyone, uh, for Israel, needless to say, for its neighbors also. And I think they also offer hope in terms of what will in a later future happen with the Palestinians. And in terms of how they happened, I absolutely share all the credit that you've just given, including for Donald Trump, of whom I'm otherwise very critical. Uh, I will not take this away from him. It's not fair. It would be anti-historical uh, from my viewpoint. As, well, as you're, you're a historian history. and to have called him an anti-Semite. Yes, although I say in my book that I, I have no pretension of being objective in my writing. I'm no, that's subjective. fine. I, I admit it. Um, I say there I'm subjective. I, I speak in the name of, of the Zionist idea and I'm out to defend it. And uh, from whoever is, I, I make all that plain in my book's introduction. But having said this. I do look for historical truth. And the historical truth is that the Abraham Accords were very good and that they happened under Donald Trump's uh, watch and inspiration. And I will not take that away from him. While on other fronts, I am critical of him. I should add to that also Benjamin Netanyahu, of whom I'm also very critical, as I've been in this broadcast. This happened in his watch, and he deserves credit for that. Having said all this, the Abraham Accords are this, the, the uh, fruition of what was jump-started by Yitzhak Rabin in the Oslo Accords. Back then, Israelis, the, he himself first emerged uh, in the Gulf and, uh, or Shimon Peres, and they first dealt directly with governments in uh, the Gulf and, in fact, first established um, nominal diplomatic ties with some of the Gulf states, uh, specifically Qatar and Oman and the Emirates and there were later setbacks over there and, and later restorations. And now we came to this happy aftermath. So everybody should be uh, credited with this uh, very blessed development having taken place um, over the most recent years. Well, you know, this is maybe a, a small view of things, but you look at the current generation. People say, oh, the iPhone is ruining the world. 
when young people see what's going on in the world, how others are living, I don't think that they want to kill their neighbor necessarily as much as they want to join their neighbor and having a lot of fun. I mean, <laughs> there's something to be said for hedonism and having a good time. And I think that that ultimately will bring about <laughs> the, the end of this hatred. You know, go across, go across the, the river there and have a good time. I don't think all Israelis hate all Palestinians and all Palestinians hate Israelis. And one of the great series I watch on, watched on Netflix that I loved was Fauda, F-A-U-D-A, which yes. is popular in Israel. I love the show because it does humanize the Palestinians. They didn't just turn them into cartoon enemies, even though they were fighting with them for, to the death. Yes. And as I understand it, some of the lead characters were members of the Israeli special forces. Is that correct? Yes. Um, their actions, their actions, how quick their hands move in a battle scene. Is that something an actor could learn very readily? I'm not sure about the actors, but um, uh, clearly the, the, the series was created by people who, who know every aspect of their story intimately. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will say more than that, uh, your reading of that is, is, is very deep. Um, in the sense that the Israelis and the Palestinians, unlike parties to most other conflicts, take, for instance, the Americans and the Vietnamese or the, the Germans and the Russians back in World War II, uh, they didn't really know each other well or even at all. Um, the Israelis and the Palestinians by now know each other all too well. Um, <laughs> all too well. Uh, they, they really know each other. No, they're truly cousins. And, uh, but it's more than that. This is ethnically speaking. I mean, experientially. Absolutely. We walk, we walk the same streets. Um, we, we, we meet each other in work situations uh, that they're often deformed situations where we uh, Israelis are uh, employers and their employees or, or we they come to our homes um, sometimes as, as, as cleaners or as service people. But we know each other. We hobnob on a daily basis. And by the way, this is the Palestinians, but among Israeli Arabs um, who are a fifth of Israel's population, um, this interaction is a thousand times more intensive and also more egalitarian. Wait, when you I'm say Israeli Arabs, you mean the, the Israeli Christian Arabs? No, them too. But I mean, the Israeli Muslim citizens, ah. um, there are there are in Israel today nine and a half, soon to be 10 million citizens. One fifth of them are Muslim Christians, nearly one fifth. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, Muslim Arabs. Muslim and Arabs. These are full citizens of Israel. And um, they are, for instance, uh, a disproportionate, a, a number larger than their proportion uh, in, in the overall population are doctors. A larger number than their share in the population are pharmacists and nurses. And um, uh, there is also a sizable number of Arab lawyers. So here, bankers, uh, the CEO of one of Israel's uh, banks, one of Israel's major banks now is an Israeli Arab. So um, in this regard, um, the interaction between Jews and Arabs in Israel is actually intense and sometimes also happy. Hmm. Well, there's a lot of uh, genetic stock that's shared between the two people in such a small part of the world and a lot of uh, uh, overlap. But going back just for a quick second before you leave us, 
again, the series Fauda, how how the actors who are Israeli shift from Hebrew to Arabic in the local dialect when going undercover astounds me as an American where they can pass as, let's say, an Arab baker coming into a catering hall in one of the scenes. And he speaks in the Arab, the dialect of the Palestinian, let us say, in that scene. And he passes for an Arab baker from the territories, the use of language, because I know here in America, the same thing holds true. Even take our gangster movies, which is a big jump. And I knew a I knew a person who was um, in, in the DEA many years ago, and he was a Jew from the Bronx and white as a dark skinned, looked like uh, an Italian. And he played an Italian gangster, but he would go into South America and he would see, speak the dialect of a Bolivian in Bolivia to the drug lords. If he made one mistake in, in his in his use of language, they would have killed him. I don't even understand how people have such a keen ear and ability to use their mind and their tongue in such a way that they can make a dialect so perfectly different. Bolivian, Colombian, Argentinian, Cuban, Puerto Rican, you know, all the dialects of, uh, of Spanish, for example. And I think this exists in Israel as well, right? All of the sub dialects within these communities. Well, uh, the people portrayed in the series and in fact, also in reality, um, would be who, who would have these kinds of linguistic skills are not ordinary Israelis, but Secret Service agents. Ah. And uh, they are trained. Uh, the ones who the select ones who need to actually play such roles were, who are obviously only a small number of, of, of the overall number of agents. Uh, they are trained um, and there are, are no example of, of what happens in the broad population. Unfortunately, the situation there is is not only that there is no such mastery of Arab of Arabic, but uh, there is no knowledge at all uh, among a too large a number of Israelis. Now, people, our big, the education system begins to understand that uh, equipping uh, Israelis uh, with Arabic yeah. uh, is indispensable and it should be made compulsory and 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 taught much more. Efficiently, the way French is taught, for instance, to uh, Anglophone Canadians, mm -hmm. um, I, I think that should also happen here with Arabic. We've been speaking with the best-selling Israeli author and a true historian, I would say a true journalist, Amats Asael, a formerly executive editor of the Jerusalem Post. But more than that, uh, your knowledge of history has stimulated me today in many ways. And we've talked about is Ukraine Russia's Vietnam? Any final thoughts at this moment, sir? Yes, I think it is um, Russia's Vietnam. And I fully share your concern that uh, too many people in the West uh, will focus on, on um, bringing Russia down on its knees mm. uh, to too crushing a defeat. Mm. Rather than uh, seeking a way to end the war with Russia, at least saving some face, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, an angry and cornered and humiliated Russia will be bad for everyone. It will be bad for mankind. Very well put. Amots Asael, thank you for your time from Jerusalem. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure was mine. <laughs> Very nicely put. Thank you. <laughs> you know, by the way, before you go, I did an interview who, who wait years ago when his book came out. I'm sure you heard of a man named Ehud Barak. Uh, sure. 
Are you a friend of his? No, but we know each other. He was on this. He did a great interview with me when his book came out about a couple of years ago. It was so stimulating. In fact, when he left, his wife and I talked and we agreed that the next time I go to Israel, I should visit them. Unfortunately, I don't go anywhere. So the chance of me visiting them is very, very low. But uh, that was a great interview. I would say this is even greater. And I want to thank you again. It's been a real honor. Pleasure was mine. Thank you. Thank you again. Good luck. Take care. I'll need it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.